When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today at River Oaks. We are really, really glad to have you here. Special joy this morning to have with us Ted and Gladys Foster, who were Members had helped us at the start of our church, but moved away uh, years ago here with their family. Welcome, Ted and Gladys, back to River Oaks. It's great to have you with us here this morning. Thank you all for being here, and also for those who prayed for me on a recent uh, trip when I was away, uh, visiting with some of our missionaries, Asaf and Lynn, who you'll see on the screen, who have a, a wonderful ministry among Muslims. And uh, several of us pastors were able to meet with them in London and not only learn about their ministry, but learn from them and others more about ministry uh, to Muslims. One of the highlights of that trip for me was visiting a local mosque that you will see, and not a very clear picture there, but the next one shows us inside the mosque. The imam there, uh, pictured, there, there we go, Uh, spent over an hour with us just teaching us really what Muslims believe. And that was really, really enlightening for me, really uh, helpful things to learn. Uh, We went to an area outside of London called South Hall that uh, primarily consists of Pakistanis. And uh, we stopped at a restaurant there, and you'll see a group of us around a table there, uh, Asaf and Lynn's uh, daughters on the right, of the other groups as well. Next shot I think you'll see is just a little sampling of incredible Pakistani food. I think you'll see it. Next slide. There we go. I can't tell you what it is, but it's incredibly good with one exception. One exception, and it's the next dish. 
And if you, I learned this, if you ever see a delicious stew of lentils like this, and it has one of those big green peppers that you can see at the bottom of the dish, never ever put it in your mouth. Never put it in your mouth. My mouth burned for a long, long time. But I'm better now and I can speak again, and so glad to, glad to be back with you today. Well, we're continuing our study this morning of the Apostles' Creed. Actually, we're looking at the biblical themes uh, that give rise to the statement in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed has been recited by Christians since the early centuries of the Christian church. And it's recited across the whole spectrum of Christian faith. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, different nations of the world. The Apostles' Creed unites us with other believers over time, over the centuries, around the world. And we're looking at it uh, for several weeks here in a church-wide study. On the screen, you'll see some of the first phrases of the creed that we've been over. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And what we see now at this point in the creed is that the majority of the, apostle, of the Apostles' Creed is given to speaking about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. The creed is Trinitarian. That is, it expresses belief in God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And belief is expressed in each of these in the creed, but the weight of the wording in the creed is given to God the Son, Jesus Christ. And notice the creed says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And notice, if you will, everything so far about Jesus is past tense. He was crucified, dead, buried, etc., but now we get to a present tense statement. He is seated at the right hand of God. That's critically important because it's an expression of faith in Jesus in his present day ministry for his people. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is doing something today at the right hand of God. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. He, at the right hand of the Father, is our great high priest. He is our great shepherd. He is, in the words of the Bible, the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. He is intimately connected with his sheep. If you're his follower, Jesus' eye is on you today. The Bible says he is our advocate with the Father, our intercessor, our priest, our shepherd. That's what he does today, seated at the right hand of God. Now this morning we move into the next statement and we go from present tense to future tense. Well, it's off the screen now, but it simply says, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning. We're going to focus on Jesus' role as the coming judge. And we're going to be looking at the passage that Tate read for us just a few minutes ago. It's a passage that comes uh, through Jesus in a lengthy teaching found in Matthew chapters 24, 25. 
And it's a teaching he gives in response to a question from his own disciples. They said to him, Lord, what's going to be the sign of your coming? The sign of the end of days. What, what are the signs going to be? And so he goes into Matthew chapter 24 and he, he gives a series of teachings uh, and parables. And the last one is the one that uh, Tate read for us from Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46 just a moment ago. And in these passages, we see that the Son of Man, Jesus, is also the great judge. And we see in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, Jesus said, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Jesus' throne is elsewhere in the New Testament referred to as the judgment seat of Christ the seat, the throne from which he will judge. Now, we don't often talk about Jesus as judge, do we? We think of him as the Savior. We think of him as our Lord. We don't often think of Jesus as our judge or as the great judge. But as we'll see in this particular teaching, Jesus, when he takes his throne, begins by making a separation. A separation between those who are his on the right hand, those who are not those he refers to as his sheep, those he refers to as the goats, those who are not among his sheep. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the judge of humanity because not only was he involved with the Father in everything concerning creation, the Bible says through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made, but Jesus has walked in our shoes. Jesus became a human being. He knows what it's like to be tempted and to uh, resist temptation. He knows what it's like to suffer, to experience pain. Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully divine. And as God, Jesus never sinned. He walked in our shoes, but he never sinned. And so he's uniquely qualified to be judge. We see in this teaching of Matthew 25 that Jesus, the great judge, knows his sheep. And so when he comes to judge, the scripture says, Jesus said in his teaching, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people. That's his first act of judgment. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. So the separation begins. Jesus knows, of course, before that time, all who are his sheep and all who are not. Because he taught in the Gospel of John, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Critically important verse. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. His sheep follow him. Furthermore, we see as his teaching unfolds that his sheep are those who bear fruit for his glory. And he explains it this way. He says to the sheep, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now when we study this passage of scripture, we have to say, if this was all we had of the New Testament, 
we would conclude definitely that salvation is based on our works. Completely. Because we read this passage and we see that those who are in the kingdom are the ones who did these good deeds for the, the needy. The ones Jesus calls the least of these. My brothers. The problem is that would contradict the rest of the New Testament. Because the whole New Testament teaches that our salvation is not about what we do, but what Jesus Christ has done. That Jesus on the cross bore the judgment for our sins and brings us into relationship with Himself such that Jesus said, you can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you're born from above, born again, born by the Spirit of God. So what's he saying here? I think he's simply saying that his sheep, who he already knows before this day, are those who, because of the new nature he gave them, bore fruit for his name. When Jesus comes into a, a, a human life, he comes in the, the way of the Holy Spirit. And he begins changing us so that there's love in our heart for the least of these, our brethren. And so, it's clear that his sheep follow him when they receive his saving work. And then his sheep inherit his kingdom. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. And let me stress it again. This kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world is not based on an accumulation of good deed points that we've gained in this world or a lack of bad deeds that we've done. It's based on the grace of God poured out in Jesus and His dying on the cross and drawing us by His Spirit into an eternal relationship with Himself. But when that happens... It's important that we bear fruit for the glory of His name. It's especially important in this teaching that we look out for the needs of the poor, the needy, the hurting, the stranger, the sick and imprisoned, that we care for them. It's the nature of a sheep. It's a nature of a follower of Jesus because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If we're following Jesus, these are the types of works that we will do. Jesus the judge became for us Jesus the Lamb of God who bore our judgment and took our place. Therefore, if you were a believer, you can know this. Jesus the judge is Jesus your advocate before the Father. Your representative before the Father's throne. One of the most interesting thing I, things I learned in uh, my time with London was on the day we visited that mosque that I showed you a few minutes ago. The imam was a very gracious, very uh, intelligent, learned man who taught us a lot about what Muslims believe, a lot that I didn't know. And one of the things he, he taught was how uh, faithful Muslims could earn points accumulate points for the day of judgment by doing certain things. 
for, for example, he told us, and I, and I recognize, by the way, just as among Christians there's a whole spectrum of, of variation among certain things we believe and practice, it's the same way among Muslims. So I'm not saying this is uh, true of every single Muslim. This is what this very learned imam taught us, that there was a system of points. And you could get points by praying, but 27 times as many points by praying together with others. You could gain points for the Day of Judgment by reading the Quran. Points for each letter that you read in the Quran. And he said, therefore, some faithful Muslims will read the entire Quran daily. It'd be like reading the whole New Testament every day. While we were there, we saw a number of men coming into the mosque. They'd come in hurriedly off the street, off the sidewalk, come in, take their shoes off, and go into this room that had a, 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 a nameplate above it uh, called ablution, the ablution room. And you see it there. It was an open room. There wasn't a door closing it, so you could see right into it. And um, these, these men take their shoes off, put them in a little place, and then go in there and go through uh, a certain ritual of washing. Washing your feet, washing your ears, washing your face. And this uh, cleansing ritual, you'll, you'll see a picture of those folded hands that are on the wall of the ablution room. And if you can't quite read it, the words say, He who performs the wadu perfectly, his sins will depart from his body even from his nails. Now, the wadu is, uh, I think we would just call it a, uh, a ritual cleansing, and it's often done for Muslims in preparation for prayers or handling of the Quran. And it was remarkable to see these men coming in, taking off their shoes, going through this in order to go to prayer or hearing the Quran. And as I thought about this ritual of cleansing, I recall these words from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews that tell us about Jesus. Book of Hebrews reflects back on some of the ritual cleansing of the Old Testament, some of the sacrifices that were being offered. And Hebrews chapter 9 reads, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Several verses later, according to this arrangement, speaking of Old Testament worship, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, the time of Reformation refers to the time that Jesus came. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that was the Old Testament place of worship, he entered once for all into the holy places, referring to heaven now, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Praise God for what he has done. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you have embraced the saving work of Jesus, the cleansing of your sins has come by the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. And the continual washing, cleansing that we need comes by, in the words of Scripture, the washing with the water of His Word. The Holy Spirit takes the Holy Word of God and cleanses us of those defilements that come. Yes, we still sin, and yes, we confess our sins, but the Bible says if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus the judge has become Jesus your advocate if you've embraced him as your Lord. So, Jesus knows his sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And we also see in this teaching in Matthew 25, Jesus knows who the goats are. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Their unbelief then is shown in fruitless lives, lives without fruit as we see in the next verses. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Their absence of saving faith in Jesus is shown in the absence of fruit. And therefore, they are consigned to hell. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the chapter ends with these sobering words. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is the topic nobody likes to talk about. But Jesus, the merciful Savior, the great judge, spoke more about hell than anyone else in the pages of the New Testament. Often, when speaking to his disciples, so that we who follow him would know the reality of hell, and it would compel us to share the work of his saving, saving work with all people. Jesus talked about it, and he also went to the greatest possible extreme to save us from it. Now all of this about judgment, the subject of eternal uh, punishment mentioned here in Matthew 25, I'm sure it raises some questions. So I want to take a few minutes now to try to respond to uh, four questions that I think might be on the minds of some as you think about this whole subject of uh, judgment in Jesus' role as judge. And the first one is this. Will Christians face judgment? Will Christians face any type of judgment? 
And I think the answer to the question is yes. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 talks about us coming before the judgment seat of Christ. And goes on to say, each of us will give account of himself to God. And in the verse on the screen, the Apostle Paul wrote to believers, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or bad. So we Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but, and I want to stress this because I think this is the teaching of the Bible, not unto condemnation. No true follower of Jesus will hear the words, depart from me. Rather, throughout the New Testament, we find verses like the ones you see on the screen from the book of 1 Thessalonians, where the Apostle Paul says when Jesus returns, uh, he notes that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yes, there's coming wrath on the sin of the world when Jesus returns. But we have been delivered from that through our faith in Jesus. As Paul writes, for God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So, if you say Christians will face judgment, but they will not be condemned, in what sense then will we be judged? When Jesus returns, there will be a judgment resulting in condemnation for those who did not know him, but reward for those who faithfully served him. The book of Revelation chapter 11 reads this way, The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name. The verses you see on the screen come from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's one of the passages where we find that at this day of judgment, the judgment for believers has to do with varying degrees of reward for faithfulness in serving God. And the Apostle Paul writes that each one's work that they're doing for the kingdom, each one's work will become manifest for the day, referring to the day when Christ returns, the day of judgment. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He's referring it to kind of like the purifying of gold through fire. Impurities are removed. The genuine endures. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved is only through fire. He seems to be saying here that there will be those who were saved because they had genuine faith in Jesus, but did few, if any, fruit-bearing, enduring, lasting kingdom works that are rewarded. No one will ever be able to point the finger at God, at Christ, and say, you're not just, you're not fair. 
his judgment, his evaluation of the works of believers will be entirely just. His judgment of unbelievers and their condemnation will have been entirely just. Believers will be marveling at the mercy of God with a greater awareness than we even have on this earth that God himself bore our judgment, bore our condemnation, took our place to bring him into the enjoyment of his eternal glory. Those who refuse that gift of Christ will recognize the great value of what they refused. Because on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. So in my opinion, my understanding, the judgment of believers is this judgment that results in varying degrees of reward for kingdom faithfulness, kingdom service, kingdom devotion. What will happen to unbelievers? Well, we've already seen that. But if we look at the famous verse in John 3.16, we'd read, For God so loved the world that he, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The next verse goes on to read, verse 18, Whoever believes in him and Jesus is not condemned. It's because Jesus took your place. He bore your judgment. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then we come again to the sobering words at the end of this teaching. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One thought about hell and eternal punishment that is uh, my opinion. I'll say it's an opinion, but I, I think it's an opinion supported by Scripture and it's a view held by many people. And it's my, my view that there are varying degrees of punishment in hell. That all is not the same for every person. And I base that on statements like Jesus made in Matthew chapter 11 where he, he had done miracles in certain cities and they had rejected him and uh, they did not repent at his preaching. And he said to them, I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Another passage that kind of implies that there are varying degrees of punishment in hell is Luke chapter 12, where Jesus talks about different ser servants and one who, who knew the master's will and, and, and yet didn't do it, as opposed to one who, who didn't know the master's will and didn't do it, and the one who, who knew the master's will and refused to do it received the more severe punishment. The implication at least, is that there are varying degrees of punishment in eternity, in part at least, on the degree of knowledge of God's will and the willful rejection of it. These are kind of heavy, sobering things to talk about. 
But I remind you that Jesus talked about them. He taught about them. He's not only Jesus, the merciful Lamb of God, he's Jesus, the great judge, and he has the right to be. Finally, how should we believers be anticipating Jesus' return as Lord, as judge? Well, I'll just very quickly go through these. Number one, with joy. You see in the passage from 1 Thessalonians that as the Apostle Paul writes about the return of Jesus and our being caught up with him, he says these are words with which we should be encouraging one another. Think for a moment what it'll be like to be with him with no pain, with no sickness, with no suffering, with no more temptation or inclination to sin, no more struggle with lust, no more struggle with greed, or covetousness, no more struggle with anger, but being completely freed from the body of sin and entirely able to enjoy the love, the glory, and the joy of God fully. It will be an extraordinary thing. I think we Americans don't think of it all that much because life for us, compared to most people in the world, is generally so good. But in the days of the early Christians to whom Paul the Apostle wrote, life was pretty hard. Often they were being persecuted for their faith. And so he encouraged them to look to the coming of Jesus. Secondly, we should anticipate his return with spiritual alertness. If you were to go this afternoon and read all of Matthew 24 and 25, that's the, those are the two chapters that Jesus taught in response to his disciples' question. What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? You'll find a theme in those chapters that we could say very simply is a theme of alertness, readiness, preparedness, spiritual alertness, being awake, alert. Uh, this chapter uses the phrase staying sober, implying being alert to the coming of God and doing kingdom work now. Spiritual alertness. And then finally, with compassion for those who don't know Him and zeal for sharing the gospel with them. If all this is true that Jesus taught about His coming, about His judging, about eternal life and eternal punishment, about the way of escape from eternal punishment, doesn't it make sense that it should compel us believers at whatever the cost to share the message of His salvation with our family and our friends, our loved ones, to be engaged in world missions and supporting the gospel as it goes around the world? If we really believe that judgment is to come it should move us, I think, to kingdom devotion. Let me skip ahead to just a, a couple questions by way of personal application. Three, rather. Number one, as we come to a close. Ask yourself this. Is Jesus the judge for me? Jesus the great advocate? The Apostle John wrote, 
If anyone sins, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. Is the judge your advocate? And if he is, you have nothing to fear in eternity and much to look forward to and celebrate. Because the one who's done the judge, is going to do the judging, has already taken your place on the cross. And he lives forever, seated at the right hand of the Father, to be your representative, your advocate, your mediator, your priest, your intercessor, and the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. Jesus, the advocate. Secondly, what would I change in my life if I knew Jesus were coming back this week? That's that idea of readiness, of anticipation, of expectation is, is in a lot of the teaching of the New Testament. Living with this alertness as if Jesus could return, as if he might return in, in our time, maybe even quite soon. So how would that affect the way I live? And then finally, how does the reality of coming judgment move me to share the gospel with other people. Would you join me as we pray about that right now? Father, uh, these are some kind of heavy things in your word, but I pray you would take them and apply them to our hearts. Lord, anything, if I've taught anything wrongly, I ask that you would overcome it and lead your people into fullness of truth. But use your word to convict us, to shape us, to teach us, to guide us. Lead us by your spirit, Father. In the name of Jesus. Lord, especially deal with anyone here who has not yet embraced your saving work. Draw that person today with the awareness of their need. And if that's you today, I would invite you to simply turn to God in a simple prayer and say, Dear God, I do believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Would you be my Savior and my Lord right now? Amen.